I always say I want to be like the Magic Johnson of women's team sports. Welcome to the Just Women Sports Podcast, where we talk to the biggest athletes in the world about the untold stories behind their success. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and my guest today is Candace Parker. Candace is one of the greatest basketball players to ever step foot on the court. Her first year in the pros, she was both Rookie of the Year and League MVP. A two-time Olympic gold medalist, Candace led the Los Angeles Sparks to the 2016 WNBA title and was named the finals MVP. Off the court, the future Hall of Famer is a respected basketball commentator as well as a mother. Candace, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for having me. So we're going to start from the beginning. We're going to go back to little Candace days. You come from a basketball family, but you didn't actually start really playing it until eighth grade. And up until that point, you were playing soccer. Really? So what was, give me, give me a rundown on that. What was that about? I was the biggest soccer fan and player. And I will say it here. My parents completely crushed my dream because no. they told me that I was going to be over six foot. And they were like, you're not going to be able to play soccer. But you and, could have been um, amazing at soccer. Yeah. Well, tell that to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved soccer. That's what I played. You know, that was my only sport really until I was like 12 or 13 years old. And the 96 Olympics really kind of shaped my sports, I guess. I was the biggest Mia Hamm fan. I was, you know, the the Atlanta Games was the Magnificent Seven with Dominique Mochianu and Dominique Dawes and Shannon Miller. I mean, I had a balance beam outside flipping and trying to be like them. So I grew up and like that 96 Olympics is when it really was when I started like idolizing female athletes as role models. That's actually exactly the same as I was, but I wasn't a big soccer fan. I played it, but the 96 Olympics gymnastic team was the, my first memory of seeing female athletes on TV and representing their country. And that changed my whole outlook on life. I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that one day. And I was watching gymnastics. You know, I had no idea it was going to be in soccer. But so how did you end up in basketball. Your parents were just like, oh, you're going to be too tall. We're putting you in basketball. <laughs> there was like a basketball in my crib ever since I was young. I went to my first game at two weeks old. My brothers are 11 and eight years older than me. Okay. And so I spent my entire childhood like at AAU tournaments, eating my snack, taking naps at games, playing behind the bleacher. Like my moment was during halftime of my brother's AAU games. And it was like me running out on the court and people being like, oh, wow she can kind of play a little bit. Like that was my moment to shine. But you weren't playing yet. It's really weird because when we were growing up, I mean, I played YBA, but YBA basketball was like, you know, you practiced on Thursday for an hour and then you came and played on Saturday and everybody was just trying to have fun. But honestly, my brother got drafted when I was 11 and that kind of opened my eyes to like, that's cool. Like he got drafted into the NBA. I was there on the couch when he got picked. I was there watching him work out with my dad and all the cool things that came with that. And so kind of just kind of made my wheels turn a little bit. Like I was like, this is kind of cool. So it, and it then, totally impacted your mindset. Growing yes, up. it did. It impacted um, my mindset. And I started, when you start making sacrifices for your sport and that's when you know it's like real. And that started happening in like seventh, eighth grade. Whereas instead of going to the mall or going to play miniature golf or go-karting with my friends, I went to the park and I went to the gym. And on Saturdays, I'd wake up and be like, dad, when are we going? When are we going to the gym? You said we could go to the gym on Saturday. And that's when I kind of fell in love with like the process of, of playing basketball. That's awesome. Did you tell your brother at that point, like, oh, I want to do what you're doing? Or was it kind of just like, oh, no, it's, it was like a little light switch in your mind. I want to do this. I want to follow in your footsteps, kind of. I tell him all the time that, like, being the little sister, everything my brothers did or were doing was, like, the coolest thing I could ever think of. Like, I remember when they started driving, when they dunked, when they went to college. Like, I thought it was so cool. And then you get to that stage and you're like, I mean, it's cool, but 
I, you know, <laughs> you didn't That's love driving. Was. You didn't love I mean, dunking. I love driving, but I just <laughs> thought of them as so much cooler. And my brothers always tell me it's because I'm not cool, but like <laughs> I wanted to play basketball because they did and I wanted to do everything they did. And so it just seemed like it was right. Yeah. I mean, so you go from getting into basketball, seriously, middle school, and then you end up having not only a dominant, but a historic high school career. You won multiple state titles, just about every National Player of the Year award, not once, but twice. So was it that light switch that propelled you into that? Or do you think you just, you found your calling? This was what you were meant to do. I'm such a individual that thrives on challenges. And ever since I was little, I think it's like the little child, the youngest child in me. Like anything you tell me I can't do, I'm going to try to do it 10 times harder to the point where like my family kind of like pulls those strings. And that's kind of how it was. I remember in eighth grade, my junior high coach was like, you know, I think you could be like top 10 in the state. And I was like, top 10, like in the state. He's like, yeah, I think as, that's all wait, you can wait. probably do. As in you, you couldn't believe that he was saying that you could be top 10 or were you like giving him a, a like side eye because you're like, no, I'm going to be number one. Yes. I was giving my side <laughs> eye. Like I'm, I'm about to be number one. And it was the same thing with, you know, my dad threw me a tennis ball and he was like, you know, Anthony and Marcus, they dunked a tennis ball at, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. Ah, just don't know if you can do it. And I spent that entire summer, like, jumping, practicing my, uh, in volleyball, I remember practicing my footwork uh, to try to do that. So it was just kind of like, and it annoys me because I know my family's doing it even to this day, but I still cannot help it because as soon as you say, I can't do something, like I'm going to try everything in, in, in me to do it. Totally. I feel you. We're, we're cut <laughs> from the same cloth. Um, <laughs> when did you realize you had it? You had what it takes to be not top 10, but number one. We were at our gym on a Saturday and we always went to this fitness center and worked out, my dad and myself. And we were joking around after a workout and I took the ball and I went up and I tried to dunk because my brothers dunked at 16. So my whole goal, my entire life was to enter high school and dunk before my brothers did, you know, period. And then also in a game. That's so so that, that we finished a workout and I just went up and just, it hit off the back of the rim. And my dad looked at me and was like, do that again. I was like, well, I've gotten a volleyball down. He's like, you, you've dunked a volleyball. He's like, you haven't dunked a volleyball. I'm like, yes, I have. And I got up and I remember him showing me the footwork to go up and dunk and my hands are big enough. And so I just went up and got it. And then that was when I was like, yeah, I really want to do this. Like this is it. You get so much adrenaline and joy from those type of just wins, you know, like it's like every practice you have a win of some sort. And so it just was like in me. That's so you were 16. I was 14 when I, when I dunked. Yeah, I was 14 (laughs) and then 15 in a game. And I don't, I was long and lanky and just. What'd your, what'd your brother say? My brothers didn't believe my dad. And you know, at that time there's not like camera phones where you can be like, see, So I had to wait till Christmas for them to come home. So when they came home for Christmas, my brother was actually in the stands when I dunked the first time in a game. And that was the first time he ever saw me dunk. And so he couldn't believe it. And it's like a video of him like jumping up and down in the background with him and his his wife. And um, it was so special to be able to kind of share that with them because we joke with each other, but we're so supportive and they're always in my corner. So it's, it's really cool. And you can talk junk to your brothers like, you know, I tell their kids to ask their dads when they dunked and then, you know. <laughs> I love it. They can never get that back. They can never beat you now to being the oh. first or the youngest to dunk. That's awesome. So you start dunking in high school. You realize that you're not going to just be top 10. You're going to be number one coming out of high school. You end up at Tennessee, which I feel like shaped you and your career so much. And obviously the biggest part of that was, was Pat Summit. She's been a huge influence on your life. So take me back to the beginning of that relationship. How did she recruit you to Tennessee? Was there a specific pitch? Did she just show you her rings? Like what'd she, what'd she do? Honestly, it's so weird. Um, my first recruiting letter from Tennessee was volleyball. Really? And 
I got the mail. I went out and I will never forget this because my dad was like, Pet Summit doesn't want you. Like, you know, another challenge. Dad. So, dad yeah, my dad. Is, he he yeah, knew how to push mom, your buttons. My dad, yes, he did. And um, <laughs> so I went out to the mailbox and I come running in with the, with the letter like, hey, dad, like I made it. You know, Pet Summit wrote me a letter and I open it up and it's volleyball. <laughs> and when I tell you, <laughs> he t- let good. him tell this story. It's hilarious. My mom as well. But it was just, my parents really wanted me to play for somebody that was powerful on the court and did her job, but also a role model off the court. And Coach Summit was one of those people that was so influential in so many people's lives. And I realize it now more than I did then, how important it is to have somebody in your corner, to have somebody show you and teach you about life. And then now as a mother... I would have sent my daughter there too. It was the expectations. It was the discipline. She walked the walk and she was just a great representation of what my, my dad wanted me and what my mom wanted me to be. And so it was just, it wasn't the easiest decision. I can't say that I didn't consider Duke or Texas or, you know, DePaul or Maryland, but it was the correct decision for sure. Probably one of the best decisions of your life, would you say? I would say it's one of the best decisions of my life. I don't know where I'd be right now individually. Um, I think I'd be a pretty good basketball player, but as an individual, as a person, I think there's so much that I learned and just that amount of time and then also just after. So she's she's known, like you said, for being incredibly tough as a coach, you know, in the heat of competition, practices, games, all those things, but she's also so loved by all of her players. So what what was her secret to striking that balance? Do you think you know? So I'll tell you this story and then, you know, I don't know her secret, but I just know how our relationship was. My freshman year was really hard. I tore my ACL my senior year and I came back in five months from ACL surgery. Don't even ask me why. It was <laughs> dumb, but I played my senior year. I was happy, whatever. So I get to Tennessee and they're like, you know, we don't play on swollen knees. That's not what we do here. So I get an MRI. They're like, okay, it's going to be six weeks or, you know, three months. And I'm like, oh, please don't be three months. You know, your freshman year, you're ready to play, you're ready to show the world. This is what it's, you know, what it is, whatever. I get out of surgery and everybody's crying. My mom, my dad, Pat, Holly, our assistant coach. So the doctor comes over to me and they're delaying the process, delaying the process. I'm asking, they're like, no, we want you to like really wake up so you understand. Oh god. And the doctor was like, your knee is really messed up. Like, I don't know if you're going to be able to play. I don't know if you're going to be able to play again, you know, whatever. And, you know, Coach Summit grabbed my hand and was like, do you trust me? And I was like, you know, yeah, I trust you. She's like, we're going to get through this together. And when I tell you my freshman year was one of the hardest years, just because I had to redshirt that year, I had exploratory surgery that actually ended up working out, um, had a total knee reconstruction. My parents got divorced that year and her door was always opened. And it, mm. it wasn't like a forced conversation. It was one of those things where it's like her door was open and she would like, come do your homework in my office. There was no like, you have to talk just to know that, I, that she was there and I think it's that stuff that I remember more so than on the court, if it makes sense. Because I think she's tough, 100%. But just to have that relationship with all of your players and to be able to reach them in different ways and to know what pushes their buttons and, you know, what they need, I think it it really takes a special person to be able to do that. For sure. I was just thinking, I mean, that's, that's a character quality that not a lot of people have, to be able to create trust and belief in somebody and just know, like, and just, I, yeah, just trust, like support, just know that you're fully supported all the time, even though they're going to push you. But I love that story of that her door was always open, but it wasn't like a pushy thing. It was just a, I've got you, you're, you're far from home. You know, this is new environment. You're in a tough situation. You're going through hard times, but she opened that to you and, I guess, to all of her players, which is like pretty special. I don't feel like many coaches can do that. And it's it's one of those things where everybody knows her as a coach that you can like take what she says and write an entire book. I mean, the quotes that come out of her mouth are unbelievable. 
but she listened. And I think we forget so much in leadership that you have to listen. And I always say this and people laugh, but I'm like, honestly, Coach Summit set me up for failure because when I went on from Tennessee, I thought coaches did that. Like I thought that was automatic. Like, because I had my dad as a coach, I had a really cool high school coach, Pat Summit. And then I get to the pros and overseas and the Olympics and it's like, some don't listen. Like they don't ever want to hear what you think. You're just supposed to do what they say. And it's like, I don't know how you operate, but I, I am a communicator and I feel like everybody wants to take, yeah, ownership and, you know, to be able to have some sort of voice and whatever. I mean, um, you know, we're some of the greatest at what we do. And so to just completely be silenced to me is a disservice to the team. And so coach summit, I mean, boy, like if you talk about empowering players, uh, she did that for sure. Do you have a good Coach Summit quote for everybody? Anything that oh, comes to mind? <laughs> so we had the definite dozen principles. And every year before the start of the season, she would assign, you know, two, two people usually, one person, one of the principles. Well, every single year I got handle success as you handle failure. And for Good so one. long, I was just like, okay, I know you're trying to make a point by giving this to me every single year. <laughs> and I get it. But I was looking at it like she thought I just was like, you know, needed to be brought down to reality. Like, that's how I looked at it. So I was like, humble yourself, you know, humble yourself before you humble others. And like, I was doing all these quotes and she's like, you still don't get it. And I was like, what? She's like, when you miss a shot, you put your head down. She's like, but when you make a shot, it's next play. She's like, that has to be the mentality that you have. Like, put in the time, the results shouldn't matter. And I never looked at handle success as you handle failure because everybody assumes it's like a negative that you need to be humbled. But really it is like not being so hard on yourself when you aren't successful or you miss a shot or you're not having a great game. That's so good. I love that. So you got that every year? Or almost every Every year. <laughs> single year, I got that. And then finally my senior year, I'm like, you could have told me this answer my freshman year. Like you wasted four years not telling me why you kept giving me this quote. Of me putting like, my head experience. down. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. Well, she wanted you to really get it. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Well, you two had an incredibly successful run together. Back-to-back NCAA championships, back-to-back NCAA tournament, most outstanding player awards, back-to-back national player of the year awards. And looking back, what does it mean to have been on the last two title teams that Coach Summit coached? It's nuts because I think when you're going through it, you don't think of it that way. Totally. Um, It's one of those things where I look back and I wish I would have been a little bit more present And I think everybody has those wishes when they don't experience, you know, when they experience something and they know that that's the last time or it's super special. But I think she, she knew uh, how special our group is and she knew that we love her and that I love her. And, you know, to be a part of that, I mean, that's something that, yes, do I wish she would have gotten more after we left? For sure. But to be able to go back and have those memories, I think it's, I mean, we go back and watch a game sometimes when I'm on the Peloton, I'll pop in a, you know, YouTube game or whatever. And it's so great to see how fun and you don't even realize it in college. You know, you're just playing, but how much fun it actually is and how great of an experience it is. Totally agree with you. It's so true. You don't realize that you're so, you're so caught up in the stress and the pressure and wanting to win. And then you don't even realize what you have ahead of you and what you have right in front of you at the moment. I feel like, I feel like my professional career has taught me how to enjoy the journey and not get too stressed out about what's, you know, right in front of you. Just enjoy it. And you look up and it's, you know, it's crazy. Like time literally has wings. Um, 100%. It really does. And you don't realize it at the time because it's like freshman year, let me get to my sophomore year. Then sophomore year, it's like, oh, I'm an upperclassman now, junior year, okay. Then senior year, like, whoa, wait a second. This is my last year. And, you know, I think 
it's a gift and a curse because I think we are who we are because we always are like, what's next? Totally. And what can we achieve next? And what's our goal? But then in the meantime, you kind of lose sight of being present. So I think it definitely is a balance. Yeah. So you, you obviously crushed your college career and you ended up, you, like you said, you redshirted your freshman year, played sophomore, junior, senior, but really it was freshman, sophomore, junior, if you're looking at it in terms of eligibility. You said you were going to go to the draft in 2008 and you end up getting drafted first. Was that something where you like, I, I'm ready to go pro. I've done what I've done here. I'm, I'm ready for the next chapter. I was. I was ready. And it was a decision that I think was right. I walked in senior night, so I was able to experience that and, and celebrate, you know, playing for Tennessee. So I just felt like the timing was right. And we won back-to-back national championships. I was going out with the class that I came in with. I had a degree, and it was just time for me to, to move on. And I was very <laughs> appreciative of the years Tennessee gave me, but I was definitely ready. Yeah, I mean... You clearly were ready because you come out, you get drafted number one, and then you end up getting rookie of the year and you're also league MVP in your first season. And WNBA is famous for being one of the hardest leagues in the world for a rookie to to crack and to be successful. And so why do you think your transition was so successful from college to pro? I played USA basketball with the senior national team ever since I was a freshman in college. And with that came a lot of experience of playing against you know, players that were experienced that were some of the best in the world. And so, you know, to have that opportunity, I think really helped me and prepared me. I also believe that playing alongside Lisa Leslie, one of the best players to ever play the game of basketball, I mean, helped me tremendously. Because at some point... How long were you hmm? playing with USA Basketball before... You turned so I pro? played with USA Basketball three years okay. before I, you know, I turned pro and it helped me a lot because I was yeah. playing against, I mean, all of the best in the entire world. I remember going out there in my first USA basketball senior national team, I was guarding Lauren Jackson. Like, you know, it's just like, well, all right. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> I guess to the no big time leagues, to, kid. <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's no time to break anything in. So it was just like, that's, you know, that was my experience. And it was just kind of one of those things where it was like, you got to take it in stride. I was playing on a great team. I know a lot of rookies come into the league and they lose for their first couple of years because their team isn't good. That's why they got the number one pick. And for me, it was just Lisa was, had her daughter the year before. So she sat out. Sparks had a bad record. So I got on a great team. That's awesome. So you also leaving college, you signed a lot of big endorsement deals, um, Adidas, Gatorade. Were you, do you feel like you were ready for that adjustment period? Like for me, when I left college, I had no interest in, I was just like, put me on a team. I don't, I don't even, do I need an agent? You know, that sort of thing. But you came out of college and, and you know, blew up off the court as well. Rightfully so, considering your success on the court. But how did you, like, how did you deal with all the business decisions of becoming a professional athlete? I leaned on my family a lot. There's not much time. A lot of people don't know this, but when I was in college, you won the national championship and literally my hair still smelled like champagne, which were, I was 21. So I was about to say, what are you drink? doing? <laughs> yeah. It's 21. And when you okay. win the national championship, especially in Tampa with your family, I had champagne, and, <laughs> you know, all that. My hair still smelled like alcohol the next day. Like I had to get up and try to take a shower and wash my hair and, and get ready for the draft. Like we get drafted the very next day. So wow. I had to kind of handle the agent and all that stuff before the final four uh, because it's just so tight. And so I, my family helped me a lot. My brothers, my mom, my dad, they all helped me make a, the best decision for me. And I had a great agent and he, you know, he represented me and had everything lined up. There's a short time between when the draft is and when the season starts. And so it was just kind of, honestly, looking back, I don't even know how, like it was just 
back and forth and okay, you have this and then you got to, now I got to pack up my apartment in college and say goodbye to people that I've been with for four years. And it was a whirlwind for sure. Yeah. But so exciting. I remember that. And I was not, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't signing with Gatorade by any means, but I just remember being like, I have no interest in this, but you clearly crushed it. And then, like I said, you backed it up on the court. So when you went into that season, were you, did you put those expectations on yourself of like, I want to be rookie of the year? Like, was that in your mind or were you just out there trying to be as successful as possible? Did you want to be like, were you thinking, oh, I want to be MVP. I have something to prove. I went into the season, like, I just want to win. I kept saying about the triple crown to win an NCAA championship, to win an Olympic gold medal and to win a WNBA championship in one year would be insane. And that was my mentality. And when I walked in there and said that, Michael Cooper was our head coach with the LA Sparks. And he was like, nope, you need to go for a rookie of the year and MVP. And I was like, what? He's like, I'll be disappointed in you if you do not get rookie of the year and MVP. Like, that's what you should, that should be your mentality. And, you know, they, they were tough. I mean, our, my rookie season, Coop was like that Pat Riley mentality. So we practiced two times a day for 21 straight days. I will never forget how my body felt. I mean, we worked for it. So that season was by far not easy at all. But, you know, we had, we had a chance and I'm still salty about losing that year. But anyway, (laughs) but you got a gold medal out of it. Got a gold medal. Uh, We won the Olympics in 2008. And it's unbelievable when I look back on that year, just because I got pregnant with my daughter that fall. And I was actually at the Olympics. So to stand on the podium and get a gold medal pregnant with my daughter, I did not know. And then to win rookie of the year and MVP pregnant with my daughter, you know, she looks at pictures to this day and is like, yeah, like we won. That's I was in there. I'm in this picture. I love and that. And it's so cool to um to be able to look back and say that. So you you have Layla, your second you're going into your second season, WNBA, and then your third and fourth season in the league, you had a series of injuries, kept you out of play. How hard was that to have such a phenomenal first year in the league and then kind of come up on these obstacles and I mean just hard times in general? I've had seven knee surgeries and I've had one shoulder surgery. And I remember when I got hurt in college, Coach Summit made me go talk to, you know, one of those sports psychologists. One of those. <laughs> and <laughs> I was just in there like rolling my eyes like, I don't need this, you know, da, da, da. And then it really like made me think as you turn into like, why me and you look at the other side and there's so many people that can't play because of injuries and I can, it's just a little bit more difficult. So instead of looking at all those that didn't have injuries and never had a problem and never had anything that was really a, an obstacle, look at it the other way. Like how many people couldn't play or how many people had surgery and their knees didn't hold up or didn't have the care that I did. And so when I started Flipping the switch that way, it made it a little easier. I was so sick of rehab that year. I had my daughter, then I had shoulder surgery, and then I had I came back from shoulder surgery completely healthy, and I banged knees in our early game. It was like the sixth or seventh game of the year. Broke my knee. Like it was just, <laughs> it was like I was the bad news bears, right? But I just kept at it, and people around me just continued to motivate me, and it really. I will say, I think basketball career would have been a lot better, obviously, without injuries. But again, as a person, I just don't think you you can. Yeah, you know, so it's uh, definitely scars, but it taught me a lot in life. So 2010, we got to talk about Russia because Russia playing overseas is like a big thing for WNBA players. A lot of people don't know how common it is that you guys go abroad. So what went into your decision to head to Russia? so weird. I was supposed to go right after my rookie season. I had signed to play in Ekaterinburg. I actually signed at the, at the Olympics to play that summer. And then I got pregnant with my daughter and 
it was like, all right, so can we delay this thing till next year? And so they agreed to delay until the following year. So it was me in December with a five-month-old baby. We took 12 suitcases over to Russia because I was like, (laughs) but that's beside the point. But I think (laughs) it was, I mean, it was a huge step to take a, you know, five, six-month-old baby overseas, I mean, to this cold environment. In America, you don't hear much positive about Russia. But honestly, it ended up being one of the best experiences we've had. My mom came with me to help me with my daughter and got involved in the culture. My daughter's first school was there. She spoke a little Russian. Wow. It ended up being like a really good experience. And fortunately, I was there. I was able to be there for like six years. Um, So it was... It was a great experience. What what was the, like, why was it such a good experience? Just because it was different, it was new. Yeah, I was there six years and I played for one of the best clubs in Europe. And we had drivers, we had amazing apartments, we had, we flew private. So a very chefs. different experience than playing yes. in the WNBA. A hundred percent. Like I call, everybody's like, what's your off season job? And I'm like, the WBA. (laughs) (laughs) That's, I mean, how you feed your children and take care of your families overseas. Uh, Yeah. So why, why is there so much money in Russian women's basketball? Rich owners? I have no idea. I mean, you don't, you don't ask questions. (laughs) I just, yeah. I just make sure it's in the account. Um, (laughs) like it's here this month. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, they honestly use it as kind of like a bragging talking point at dinner. We had one of the richest men in Russia and companies that owned our team. So we would have parties and like by the fourth year, it's like the first year you're like, oh my gosh, these parties are unbelievable. And then by like the fourth year, like another party. Can we like, and I'm saying like top of the line vodka and dancers and music and all this stuff. And it's just like, it, it really was a great experience. The funny thing is, is like Layla was a kid there. And so she would go to the playgrounds and all the kids would look. And, you know, at first I think we got offended. Because, you know, as African-Americans traveling, you're like, oh, they're staring at her because she's black and like whatever. And no, they just had never seen a, a black kid before. So yeah. they all come over and this one kid tries to get up enough words and says, I love your hair. And she and he's like, can I touch it? And Layla's like, one time. <laughs> so he touches her hair and then they run and play. And it's just Aww. like, it's so cool to see that like we're really not that different. Like yeah. we really, you know, we love, we have kids, we have a family, we have friends, we like to have fun. And that's like every culture. That's so, so beautiful. It was, it's really cool. Yeah. Does Layla still, can, could she speak a little bit of Russian if she tried? She has not she spoken kept up Russian. With it? That kid. Um, <laughs> I was trying to get her to- Can you? you no. Know, I can understand. I can okay. speak a little bit. Choo-choo. But I can understand and like I can get by. It's been funny when I'm on an elevator and like somebody says something about me and I'm like, oh, that's not very nice. Like when I get off. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's awesome. All right. So good vodka. Nice kids. Yeah. Dancers. Great vodka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so jumping ahead to 2016, another big year for you. Controversially, you're left off of the Olympic team. It's a decision a lot of people question. And then on top of that, you know, Coach Summit passes away during the WNBA season. From that moment, you dedicate the season to her and you go on to win your first WNBA title, your finals MVP. I feel like this is like kind of a Hollywood movie, like (laughs) sad, but like so, you know, wonderful in the end. And... So just walk me through that year and just everything that that happened. I mean, I feel like that's kind of a loaded question, but it was definitely an emotional year. I think just personally as well as professionally, but I have a really dope circle. I honestly do. And I think it's in those times that 
you don't waver because you know you have people that are supporting you and behind you and love you and care for you and want what's best for you. I had to go back to like my roots and that's kind of when I developed the mantra of like calm is a superpower because there's a lot of things that I think should have been a, a certain way, should have been this, should have been that, but it's like because I didn't throw a fit, because I didn't act crazy. I look back at that like I'm not the fool that year, you know? But then also Coach Summit meant and means so much to me and so much to me as a basketball player. And so I just don't think it's a coincidence that I got my first WNBA championship. Like I knew she was watching. It's crazy. Um, and, you know, the, the, the day she passed, we had a game that night. And I remember trying to figure out, you know, how I was going to get the, I would say just the inspiration to play. I mean, I think, you know, when somebody passes away, you want to honor them, but it's like, sometimes you just don't have the energy, you know, you're just so overwhelmed and emotional and things like that. And so that night I just was like, let's, you know, I'm just going to go out there and play for her. And I ended up getting the most amount of rebounds that I got all season. And I could hear her every time, like Parker, go to the boards, Parker, go to the boards. Cause that's all she talked to me about in college was just rebounding, 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 all that. So that night it was just like, there's all these things that yes, they're somewhat in my control, but it just happened that way. And so I just, I kind of look back for it and I have a lot of gratitude just because you realize so many things when you, when you go through a, a trying time like that. For sure. I mean, yeah, it's, you, you said it perfectly. And at the end, WNBA final, you, the confetti streaming down, you look up, I watched this and I almost started crying before we got on here and you said, this is for Pat. And it was such a powerful moment. I, I might get emotional now, but like, what was it like to reach the pinnacle that you hadn't reached yet, given all that had happened? Like, what did that mean to you? I just knew she was there and I knew she had something to do with it. She's been so influential in my entire life, not just in basketball, the way I parent, the, the type of teammate, um, the daughter, the friend, the wife, the everything. And I realized like, you're never really a finished product. And so it's just kind of like all those things came to me at that moment. It was basketball, but it was like more than that. And it was more of an achievement as an individual as well, because I don't know if you, like I could have gone ape shit and just went off and like, you know, I could have done totally. that and yeah. I could have acted a fool and people probably would have been like, okay, but I wasn't raised that way. And I sure wasn't coached that way. And, um, so I think at that moment it was just kind of all these things and all these reasons why I wanted to yell. It was like, she was right again. Like we, I got what I wanted. <laughs> Our team yeah. won the championship. It was almost like, I hear you, Pat, like this is for you for sure. Yeah, that's so special. And it's so true. I mean, I feel like it's like you can, when you hit hard times and when basically when shit hits the fan, like you can easily have an excuse to go off the rails. And I feel like that's happened to me a couple of times, probably not publicly, but like, then you realize like, no, this isn't the person I am. Like, this is about resiliency. And that's how I was raised. And that's like you said, that's how I was coached. And I mean, that's a testament to you and the people, like you said, you have a tight circle and that's, that's pretty special. Can you say any more on the Olympic decision? Was that something that was kind of out of left field or did you kind of have a feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm not probably not going to be on the squad this year? How'd you handle that? It's interesting because it never occurred to me at all that I would be left off the team just because one, I'm one of those like performance-based people and like the training camp that I gave up time because I was going overseas and you know, with women's basketball, it's like, it's a tight schedule. So if you want us to do three weeks of training camp and we're going overseas, that's three weeks away from home. That's three weeks not being in America. That's three weeks before I got to travel and, you know, time away from my daughter and all that. So we went on a training camp to Spain and Italy and I played some of the best basketball I think I've played. I mean, I almost had a triple double one game. Like it was just, it was great. You know, it's, uh, I'm one of those like, 
if you say something, like say it, you know, if you say something, mean it and back it up and do what you say. And so that's kind of how it was. Like I played well, so why wouldn't I? It wasn't a question. So then I knew that I wasn't crazy when Carol Callen, ahead of basketball, called and was like, you know, we have so much respect for you. We want to give you the opportunity to say, you, you know, you, you're pulling out of the Olympics. And I was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. Like y'all really? come out and say, you guys cut me. Yeah. Wow. So this is a conversation. And so Good this is you. how, this is how one of those, you know, this is, and listen, I respect everybody that's on the team. This has for nothing sure. to do with that. But at the same time, it's like, tell it like it is. Tell it like it is. Like if you think that, you know, it's not about talent, it's about this, whatever, then say it. Don't say that I'm not good enough to be on the Olympic team. And then I kind of came to the decision too. the next year, you know, I got a letter and I got a call and like, you can come to training camp and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, I'm trying to set an example for my daughter in terms of like, if somebody doesn't treat you the way that you feel like you should be treated or disrespects you in a way, then I'm going to go back and play. I'm going to give up my time again. I'm going to like, I got two gold medals. I'm cool. Like my grandkids can have them. You know, like they have something to remember me by, I guess. But at at some point it was just like, I'm done. I'm not about to go through this again. And so I respect the fact that that's how you've approached it. And hey, you got your WNBA title that year. So <laughs> came out on top. All right. So social advocacy, get into mm-hmm. this just a little bit. So the WNBA as a league is at the forefront of so many important conversations today around racial justice, gender equality. Why do you think this league attracts so many confident, outspoken players? Because we're the mi- majority of the minority. If you think I saw about this. our league. I saw, I saw you say this the other day and I loved yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're 80% African-American. We're women. So we're 100% women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sure. That's yeah. one thing that you can count. 80% African-American. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, sexual orientation, you name it. And that's the minority in the world, but the majority in our league. And with that being said, I think it goes with like, we really take this seriously of leaving the game better than we came into it. And I don't know if it's just talk, like it's action. A lot of people can talk about stuff. And you're, you're saying you don't know if right now it's just talk, it's actually action. Are you saying, no, no we're, I'm we're saying putting action it's not together. not just talk, it's going yeah. to be action. We're a league that yeah. has been at the forefront when it wasn't necessarily cool. To, to speak out and to, to put your neck on the line. And so I do believe we have to, because if we don't, I mean, who's going to? That's how I feel about things. It's like when I first turned pro, I looked around and I was like, oh, somebody else will do it. No, we're the ones who have to do it. Mm-hmm. What do you think needs to happen to get more people or more women in leadership positions? Because right now what you're saying is, the minority, which is the major, the majority of the league, which is the minority in this country, isn't reflected in leadership positions in WNBA. So how does that happen? What do you think needs to happen? Well, for me, there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's layered. It's a, complex. Huh? I'm a huge believer in, I don't know if you've done the Harvard implicit bias test, but it's honestly shocking because I am one of the biggest feminists that women can do anything men can do and da 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 it's like there's this these implicit bias that we have that are in us. And it starts from a very, very, very young age. And I have so much hope for this young generation of young girls and young boys because they've grown up and they've seen a variety of people in different roles. And in order for us to honestly see people and see who they truly are and to, to speak about equality or even nearing that, one, you have to be able to read about it and you have to see it and it has to be represented. And it has to be represented in different roles. You know, the, the longstanding joke of like, not the joke, but the riddle of like, a son is brought into the emergency room. It's not his dad. The doctor says, oh, yeah. oh my gosh, I can't operate. Who is this? And people are like stumped by it. And I'm like, it's the mom. Like, <laughs> why can't the mom be a doctor? Like, how is this hard? But it's, but like it's that so type true. Of, that type of stuff. Visibility is so important. Visibility is so important. I think it's that, but it's also people holding their organizations accountable. 
I don't necessarily know how we get to a point of a diverse table, but if you don't respect the person, you're never going to hire them. Like if you don't see him in a role, you're never going to hire him. And you know, like if in 20, 30 years you have a corporation and start and somebody puts soccer on their resume or something like that, immediately you're probably going to be attracted to that. You're going to be like, oh, like that's an interest. Like, okay, where did you go to school? Like, where are you from type of thing? And that's what it is. Honestly, you hire the people that have the same interests, the same background, the same education. And so right now we're kind of in a cycle in our country that that's what's happening. And so I do believe in having scholarships, having action plans with organizations of the amount of people that they have to at least interview. The challenges that I face individually, when you're speaking with somebody that you're not comfortable with or doesn't look like you, you're not yourself, you know? And so when you walk in as an African-American or as a person of color or as a woman into a boardroom of all white males and you're expected to have a amazing interview with no jokes, no similarities, no, no things to, I mean, what are we, where are we, you know, what are we, what's our has common that, ground here? Has that happened to you? It's really funny. I have this story. We were on um, the shop with LeBron show. So I was sitting there. First of all, John Stewart is like my hero. I watched him on the daily show every single day. So he was sitting next to me. It was Draymond Green. It was LeBron and they were sitting there and talking about, they're like, do you know how hard it is to be a black man and walk into a boardroom meeting? And, <laughs> and you were the like, only black man. And I was like, so I'm the only female, like, I appreciate y'all. Like, thank you for including the female voice and African-American voice. I get it. But like, yes, hell yeah, that's my work environment. But I think it's important for us to establish, like, I'm not trying to be like one of the guys. Like, that's my, my goal. I want to be a, one of the players. And I, I established that early at TNT was like, my goal is not to like be a dude with y'all. Like that's not my goal, but also like we're going to have a, a, a respect. And fortunately, like I've had teammates that, that have that. And it's just trying to encourage others to kind of break through and challenge those norms and to help other people out. I mean, I think as women, we we're taught there's only one slot, so we don't really help each other out. And it's not our fault. I think it's the system's fault, but we got to do more of that. And just speaking with you, you clearly have a big picture mindset. And where does this come from? Because do you feel like you've learned this, like even just hearing you talk now about, you know, being the only, only female or only African-American female to walk into a boardroom of all white males. Do you feel like you've, through your career, gained the confidence to know, like, I'm going to bring exactly what I bring to the table. I'm not going to try to assimilate myself to what you guys want me to be like where does that has that always been there do you feel like you've learned that through your professional career it's so interesting my dad he worked in Chicago so he'd take the train every morning um, downtown Chicago and he insisted on us living in the suburbs so my mom myself my brothers we all lived in the suburbs we went to Naperville Central which was voted the number two place to raise a kid in the United States like Naperville was awesome but I was always like one of two black kids in the class and then in the summer, I would go into the city and I would play on my AAU team and I would be, you know, it'd be all black kids and maybe one, one, white, one white kid. I played overseas in Russia where you're the only English speaker. I played in China where I'm the only black. So I feel like it's experience. It's like my entire life, I've been forced to be in these rooms and to operate. And when you're in that and you're uncomfortable, you become comfortable because you realize like you can connect with somebody through something. You just got to find it. And I think as you talk to different people, you realize like our values are pretty much the same. Like our desires, our wants, our needs are pretty much the same. And, you know, I think that's from going overseas. That's from, you know, being the only, it's from going to the park and being the only girl playing on the court. Soccer, I'm the tallest one out there. So I stick out like a sore thumb. Like it's just, that's how it was. And it's about adjusting, but it's also being confident in like who you are. And I'm very thankful my parents raised me to be proud of who I, who I am and proud of the size of my feet and don't hunch over because you're tall. Um, everything. So I was, that was definitely something through experience, but also what I was taught. For sure. All right. 
we have two repeat questions that we hit. And the first one is they say, work hard, get lucky. How much of your success is predicated on luck? I am a big believer that if you work hard enough, then the luck will come. Because if you don't work hard, you're not going to be in a position to have luck. So I think some of my career for sure is luck. But I mean, in essence, like we kind of hit the lottery in terms of just being here on earth. And I know I'm going like big, big scale of things, but like I'm six, four, like that's pretty cool. Big feet, big hands can jump a little bit. So like, that's pretty lucky. I didn't really work for that, but the other stuff definitely worked for. It's like a weird, do you have a percentage, but a percentage? Um, I would say it's probably like 90, 10. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm asking everybody percentage. Cause I want to like, see. what's your percentage? Oh, I'm probably like 80, 20. Okay. I would say, yeah. cause I be think it, I mean, I think I, I agree with what you said on, if you get lucky and you haven't been working hard, the luck isn't going to pan out to anything. You got to be ready for when that luck strikes and be able to take opportunity and make the most of it. Okay. Last question. You're a living legend, a future hall of famer, someone has, who has done and seen it all. Where do you want to go next? And how do you keep pushing? I would like to be, I always say, I want to be like the Magic Johnson of women's team sports. Like I want to be an entrepreneur. I'd like to be versatile in different things, whether it be entertainment, whether it be business, television. But I definitely want to be able to play with my kids. I think that's the biggest thing is just to be able to watch them grow up and play and be a part and be present. So I think those are my my two main mean things. And I want to live in Hawaii for a year. Does that count? Can I say that? Which which island? Oh my gosh, Maui. I Really? I've never been to Maui. I'll come visit you in Hawaii. Is that Please. allowed? Can I do that? Yes. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for sharing everything and for who you are and what you've done and what you're going to continue to do to keep pushing and keep keep fighting the good fight. I really thank you so much. You're awesome. I wish you the best of luck as well. Um, Please, you know, stay safe in the bubble. Yeah, I'll come. I'll come see you in Maui in a couple years. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And also, don't forget to sign up for the Just Women's Sports newsletter. It's everything you need to see and know in women's sports delivered straight to your inbox. And while you're at it, also throw us a follow on social. It's at Just Women's Sports. Our show is co-produced by Just Women's Sports and Boom Integrated, a division of John Marshall Media. Big thanks to our executive producers, Haley Rosen, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. John Murray and Sydney Shaw do our research. Post-production is by Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Special thanks to Jesse Louie, Sarah Storm, and Haley Kopmeyer. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and you've been listening to the Just Women Sports Podcast. See you next week.